Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 66, Marge Gets Mortal Kombat. Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons of modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Cry wolf when we cry wolf. Curate large mammals when we curate large mammals. And today I'll be talking about Season 4, Episode 7, Marge Gets a Job, which aired on November the 5th, 1992, a mere two days after the last episode. And given that Marge Gets a Job was first broadcast two days after itch and scratch of the movie, and the whole world was taking the aftermath of the US election, I'm taking the opportunity to do a video games episode. This time I'm having a look at Mortal Kombat, the fighting game that was sweeping the world. It was very popular and highly controversial following its arcade release on October the 8th, 1992, about a month before Marge Gets a Job was first aired. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore Retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Any chatter, Tom? Uh, Yes, we had a nice at-reply on Twitter from Timothy Burleson. We were talking in the last episode about films that you would be embarrassed to not have seen in the playground. And Tim writes, definitely recall being about Bart's age when the first Star Wars came out. It was talk of the playground, how many times one saw it. If you hadn't, you dared not confess the fact. I do have an oft-trotted-out story about being unable to watch Transformers the movie when it was originally released, um, due to uh, poor behaviour on my part, (laughs) um, which uh, was my essentially my one of those. Um, Tom, an equivalent... No, I was far too good when I was a kid. (sighs) Well, make it up for it now, I'm sure. (laughs) Also, I'd just like to give a a wider shout-out to the the Simpsons uh, posting community. It didn't come home again, and it's surprising that we've done the podcast for so long that I've been able to say that twice so far. (laughs) But the memes have kept me going. Some of the best material I've seen for a long, long time. So, thank you to everyone involved. Mm-hmm. Island Simpsons fans, very happy that England didn't win the European Championship. And now let's go back to November the 5th, 1992. But Gareth, I hear you cry. What was the UK number one that week? Well, as discussed, I've struggled a bit to work out what we could talk about that we haven't talked about before. We've got Boys to Men at number one, Arrested Development at number two, Tasman Archer and Take That are still in the top ten and a number of similar EDM acts fill out that whole part of the charts. I never thought I'd say this, but thank heavens for The Ambassadors of Funk featuring MC Mario with Super Mario Land. (laughs) Well, we had Tetris the other week. Absolutely. So you've got to get the set, haven't you? Um, So this is at number nine that particular week. So this is little more than the very catchy overworld theme from level one of probably the original Game Boy's third biggest game after Tetris and Pokemon Generation 1, that being Super Mario Land. The game itself was clearly stunted by the technical limitations of the machine and also by being one of the earlier games produced for it. It consisted of platform action in levels one and three and scrolling shooter ups in levels two and four, and that was it. The song, the lyrics for which are credited to Simon Harris and Colin Case, <laughs> features the aforementioned in-game music over a pattern of extremely 90s samples, including that one that everyone used, which I assume was going cheap given how often it came up. MC Mario, it should be noted I can't find out very much about the ambassadors themselves, but I believe MC Mario's usual nom de plume was Einstein, raps about... well, who knows? <laughs> I'm not sure if he's in the game, or if he's playing the game, or if he wants to play the game. He does mention swinging through trees and fighting killer bees, neither of which occur in the game, so he might just be massively confused. He also mentions Wizard of War, which is a much more obscure arcade game from several years earlier, and fighting the creature from the Blue Lagoon, which is wrong on all kinds of levels. Tom, I don't know what's going on here. I I don't know what this is. 
Well, I haven't heard it for decades, so yeah, I've got no idea either. Madness, absolute madness. So um, it actually gets one place higher than this at some stage, peaking at number eight, um, and it was in the UK charts for eight weeks. But what we didn't get over here was the album, Super Mario Compact Disco. <laughs> okay. Released in Japan on August the 1st, 1993, it features much, much, much more of the same. It was a cult classic over there that was remastered and re-released with five bonus tracks for the 35th anniversary of Super Mario Brothers earlier this year. Oh, my word. I think that's the, the best summation of that, <laughs> yes. Moving swiftly on, the US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 13.6, approximately 12.7 million households, 25th for the week, and the highest rated show on Fox, beating Beverly Hills 90210 and, as mentioned last time, itself. The two-episode week means that The Simpsons was both the first and third highest rated show on Fox that particular week. The production number is 9F05, and the credited writers are... Ooh... It's a big debut this week. Bill Oakley and Josh Weinstein. William Lloyd Oakley and... Well, I've just got Josh Weinstein here, which is a bit of a letdown. Uh, they became friends at St Albans School. Not to be confused with St Albans in Hertfordshire or Dr Alban. I was going to say. Only Oakley went to Harvard, with Weinstein going to Stanford. Although he did still manage to become an honorary member of the Harvard Lampoon, as he helped Oakley out over the summer. Oakley and Weinstein both did spec scripts for major comedy shows, but they weren't picked up. And they worked in publicity and copywriting, respectively, before a big break took them to LA to write for a show called Sunday Best, which was cancelled after three episodes, leaving them unemployed. However, a spec script the duo wrote for Seinfeld for some reason, came to Al Jean and Mike Reese's attention. There were no openings on The Simpsons staff full-time at that stage, but they were hired to write this very episode, which in turn gave them a chance to write for a sitcom. But then chance struck again, as Jay Kogan and Wallace Wolodarski announced they were leaving The Simpsons, leaving room for a new iconic double act. And these two joined the staff in 1992. They wrote together... Literally, side by side at the computer, apparently. And after the exodus of experienced writing staff at the end of season four, they were two of only four writers that were left, in a list that notably doesn't include our old friend John Schwarzwelder. Almost like he didn't exist. Mm. Because of this vacuum, they were pushed to the moon immediately and are credited with a ton of classics, including, but by no means limited to, Lisa vs Malibu Stacy, Bart vs Australia, Sweet Seymour Skinner's Badass Song, and Who Shot Mr. Burns. Of interest on that last one, the pair pitched Barney as the shooter, but then showrunner David Merkin pushed for the eventual outcome. Even odder, by the time that outcome aired, Merkin had left and Oakley and Weinstein were running the show. Okay. As runners of seasons 7 and 8, they are in the big chair during arguably the best seasons of the generally agreed greatest run of The Simpsons. They stood down because they didn't want to do more than two seasons, which was in keeping with everyone before them, and because of the pressures of the role itself. They did remain executive producers for the very start of season 9, which included season 9, episode 2, The Principal and the Pauper, which isn't even a bad episode by anyone's standard, but is often erroneously pointed to as the start of the rot which it isn't. Just have to be clear on that. Okay. They won three Emmys for their time with the show and created a show called Mission Hill straight after. That was a show about a cartoonist. They sold it to the WB network, but there were promotional issues that caused it to get blasted by the press before it even aired. And when it did air, it went out on Friday nights, which is a notoriously difficult sell for American television. It was quickly cancelled, and they served as consulting producers on... Futurama, for hmm. a bit. The mainstream work seems to have dried up since, but one assumes they were well rewarded for their previous services. I, for one, welcome our new part Harvard Masters, and can't wait to see some cracking episodes from the duo. The chalkboard gag is, I will not teach others to fly. A bit dark, that one. Hmm. And the couch gag is, the family's heads are mixed up, and they rearrange them appropriately. But finally, what actually happens? Well... The Simpsons are going to check the mail. 
and Homer drinks some washing up liquid. <laughs> yeah, what are you going to do? They can't all be high-octane shoot-mob cops and robbers openings, you know. <laughs> Mars knows that there's a retirement party coming up for someone at Homer's work before noticing a pipe-smoking Flanders on a definite slant outside. Something is amiss, and that something is a broken foundation causing half of the house to sink. No worries, though. Homer's got a VHS copy of the half-assed approach to foundation repair. Unfortunately, as he rapidly learns from Troy McClure, who you may remember from such videos as Mothballing Your Battleship and Dig Your Own Grave and Save, he has no latex patching compound, patching trowel, extruded polyvinyl wall insulation, aluminium J-channel, self-burring screws, brushable coating, and either corrosion-resistant metal stucco lathe or carbon fibre stucco lathe. <laughs> what kind of a suburban father is he? Yeah, I know. It's a trip to being cute, it's all about. Enter Surly Joe of Surly Joe's Foundation Repair. When his spirit level merely slides away, he quotes $8,500 for the job. And he's the only foundation guy in town. Another solution is required, especially with the local news getting involved and Bart Carnival barking outside. So Marge suggests she get a job, which Homer immediately takes to mean he can give up his job and go and live in the woods. <laughs> anyway, off to the retirement party for Jack Barley, who doesn't actually want to leave. It's at the crashed Spruce Caboose, wherein Burns and Smithers go full-on Citizen Kane for the nth time, before having Jack thrown out of his own party by hired goons, and announcing that his job in Sector 7G is up for grabs. Wait, wait, wait. Hired goons? Yes, I just prefer the personal touch you get with hired goons. Oh, okay. Despite Homer reminding Marge that the Bible says, Thy shall not horn in on thy husband's racket, <laughs> she and Lisa fine-tune her CV. Tom, can you name all of Lisa's lies on the resume? What jobs does she say Marge has held? Um, she says that she's been a seamstress, a curator of large mammals, and she works with the Carter administration, you know, voting for history's greatest monster twice, <laughs> something that Marge is keen to play down, and one other kind of mundane thing that I can't remember... It's chauffeur. Chauffeur. Okay. And bonus points uh, for the things that Smithers mentions. Um, <clears throat> well, she wrote a song that was probably correctly attributed to Muddy Waters. She speaks Swahili and she invented whatever machine she ends up working at. I didn't even have that last one down, so congratulations. You Not only have you won the quiz, you've broken the quiz. <laughs> Fantastic. We're still doing one next time. Okay. The lies are certainly a hit with Smithers, and she gets the job ahead of a reapplying Jack Barley. Homer still has reservations about spending all day every day working with his wife. I tried that, by the way. I don't recommend it. All of which somehow leads to Bart imagining the Curies as Kaiju. <laughs> Nonetheless, she starts at the plant as Grandpa does a terrible job of babysitting, and we finally get to our B-plot as Bart fakes a stomach ache to dodge a test at school. Edna reminds him of the boy who cried wolf, but he never finished that either. Unfortunately, that lands him with Grandpa's home remedies of leeches and rectal thermometers. Burns sees Marge on the CCTV and is instantly smitten. Like, immediately, not to 60 in no time. At least she has his ear to point out the morale problem, and he instigates healthy snacks, a funny hat day, and piped in Tom Jones. He uses this as an excuse to move Mars to the office next to his. Bart then fakes an ovary ache to get out of a test. <laughs> and even Grandpa's asking if he read The Boy That Cried Wolf. I wonder where that's all leading, eh? They keep mentioning The Boy That Cried Wolf. It's, I, I can't work out mm. where that one's going to wind up. Anyway, Homer is bitter at Marge's promotion, arguing that he works like a Japanese beaver, when in actual fact he's usually sleeping or playing with electrical tape. Burns is dreaming. You know that dream when you're in bed and they fly in through the window? <laughs> so he dispatches Smithers to find that crooner she likes so much, after being reminded that not only is Al Jolson dead, but that they have actually dug him up before. At Country and Western Day, Lenny is dressed as the Fonz after a diary mix-up and rushes home to change. That's the whole scene, I just like that joke. 
And the foundation repairs are finally carried out, although they could have avoided all of that with a 50-cent washer. Homer ignores the advice. And in Las Vegas, Tom Jones is asked to look into a suitcase full of gas. And now, the punchline for Bart. Smallpox, the Benz, and rabies? We'll come back to that. Have delayed his test yet further, but he's bound to rights now. He sat in the corridor on his own to make sure he plays ball. But meanwhile, nearby, Krusty has a timber wolf on his show. When the word of the day causes a sensory overload for the poor thing. And the wolf attacks Bart. Meaning he's actually crying wolf. He's really, he's doing it, Tom. He's <laughs> crying wolf. Not figuratively, but literally. Who could have guessed that was where we were going with that, eh? <laughs> anyway, Willie wrestles it to a standstill and Bart hands in his tattered test saying there was no wolf, and collapses. Marge accepts Burns' invite for what she doesn't realise is a date, whilst Tom Jones smiles for his life. But at this stage he realises Marge is married, which he could have checked at any stage. Yeah. He immediately fires Marge, who threatens to sue, but unfortunately uses Lionel Hutz, who hasn't slept in days and is drinking scotch at 9.30am. He is immediately scared off by ten high-priced lawyers. However, Homer finally steps in and demands an apology from Mr. Burns, who gives Homer his place at the date he planned, an intimate concert from a captive Tom Jones who is going nowhere fast. And that's it. Plenty of good and iconic moments in this one, but maybe a shade under the top tier for me. Possibly due to, and I may have mentioned it once or twice, the on-the-nose delivery of the wolf subplot. <laughs> what do you reckon, Tom? Well, the wolfing has never bothered me, but what I love about this episode is just, uh, it's like a machine gun, how many jokes there are, and there's all sorts of different types of humour, there's slapstick, there's stuff that's set up uh, in advance. I love the bit where Mr Burns puts some scalp wax on his on his head, and then the next second he tries to prop his head up, and then it immediately slips on, onto the table. It's great stuff. Are you ready for some character debuts? Go on. The Angel of Death. <laughs> but since the time of cleansing was at hand, it wasn't necessary or safe for that character to appear again. Although we did notice him in the queue for donuts just after he's gone off to start the cleansing. Boy, I hope someone got fired for that blunder. Which naturally leads us to the second most famous debutant this time, Tom Jones. Sir Thomas John Woodward OBE. I didn't know you could be a Sir and an OBE at the same time, so I've learned something today. Mm-hmm was born in 1940 in Treforest, Pontypridd, Glamorgan, Wales. Having nearly been killed by tuberculosis at age 12, which he spent two years essentially bedbound to recover from, he married and had a child at 16. His marriage would survive for 49 years until his wife Linda's passing, despite his many very obvious infidelities. And he went to work in a glove factory. And that's about it, really. Of course, it is not. He fronted a band called Tommy Scott and the Senators on the lucrative Welsh Working Men's Club circuit, where he was spotted by manager Gordon Mills, who renamed him Tom Jones after a popular film of the time. A record deal with Decker followed, and he started shifting some of the over 100 million records that he has sold in his career. In 1967, he entered the slightly more lucrative club circuit in Las Vegas, and played there for at least a week every year until 2011 concentrating on that rather than recording, which meant that in the rest of the world he became a bit of an afterthought by the early 80s. Around that time, Gordon Mills died, and Tom's son Mark took over as his manager, guiding him to a Tony Bennett-esque turnaround in Fortunes, with the double whammy of comeback single A Boy From Nowhere and his cover of Prince's Kiss, backed by contemporary pop dance act The Art of Noise, bringing him firmly back into view. He would go on to play Glastonbury in 1992 and appear as himself in The Simpsons, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and in 1996, the oft-forgotten but absolutely brilliant sci-fi spoof Mars Attacks. Oh, yes. All of which exposed him to new audiences, as did his well-judged 1999 duets album Reload, which features a version of the Talking Heads burning down the house with the cardigans that I genuinely think is better than the original, and his duet with fellow Valley's Dwellers, the Stereophonics, on Mama Told Me Not To Come, 
which was in the charts for about 30 years, as far as I remember it. <laughs> Since then, he continues to pop up every so often, quite often with collaborations or themed albums of a single genre. And you know what? He's still got it. What a set of pipes. And as for this appearance, he seems to have left a genuinely positive impression on the cast, who said he was really nice and fun to work with. Mm. I forgot about Mars Attacks, though, because that is one of my favourite films, especially one of my favourite comedy films. It's just wonderful and silly and over-the-top and, and just great. It's absolutely brilliant, but I do forget about it if I haven't been reminded it exists every year or so. Yeah, very, yeah. Very, very odd. I should get that on DVD, really. Yeah, exactly. I must go and watch Mars Attacks when I get home. Are you ready for some did-you-knows before you go and watch Mars Attacks? Mm-hmm, I certainly am. So, as we're well aware, almost everything about Mr. Burns is a reference to Citizen Kane, and this time it's the song and dance in the train. For a double whammy of Burns references, we see a photo of him meeting Elvis Presley, which is very similar to an actual photo of Richard Nixon meeting Elvis Presley. And since we've mentioned Nixon, I need to make this sound. <laughs> According to the DVD commentary for this episode, the jargon in the half-assed guide to foundation repair is taken directly from a Time Life book about foundation repair. So if you did want to try to repair your own foundation, don't. <laughs> in the aftermath of the 2011 earthquake and tsunami that caused the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear disaster... Austrian television network ORF pulled this episode and season 16, episode 11, on a clear day I can't see my sister, due to jokes about radiation poisoning and nuclear meltdowns, respectively. I'm assuming for this one it's the Curies. I suppose so. Although there are a few more slapstick moments at the plant which could have been taken the wrong way, I suppose. It, see, it seems a little over the top to, to pull this episode because of... The aftermath of a nuclear disaster. I mean, it's no playing an episode about New Orleans straight after Hurricane Katrina, is it? No, no. I think maybe everyone was just on particular guard at that stage. Mm. Um, But there we go. And finally, rabies. I thought I was having a Mandela effect moment, but no. It did originally say Tourette's, and that's what I remember from the first time this was aired. Ah... Of course, Bart then starts snarling, gnashing, and insulting people. The punchline suited the perception of the latter condition at that stage more, but it is definitely an insensitive portrayal of it, and it was removed for syndication. So it was removed relatively quickly after the, the uh, airing of the episode. Right, right. So, so in the original, original version... Mrs. Crabapple does say Tourette's, but straight afterwards they changed it to rabies. Yes, I thought it was a Disney Plus thing, but I must have just been misremembering it all these years. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense, actually, when you consider what Bart does after Mrs. Crabapple says rabies. Because I always thought that that was a bit weird. It's it's like rabies doesn't give you ticks and make you swear and stuff like that. Even as Tourette's, really, but uh, yeah, okay, that, yeah, that makes total sense. Excellent. Okay, and with that uh, all behind us, let's move on to some memeable moments. Okay, now this one has got some top quality Italy winning the European Championships on penalties memeable moments. It really has. So I've gone for thirteen usual disclaimers. Some may say there's less, some say there's more. But number one, we have a half-assed approach to foundation repair featuring possibly Troy McClure's best line ever, which is now Parge Villar. Or Parge Villar, whatever we'd say in this country. Who knows? Then you have the power plant's retirement party at the Spruce Caboose. Some people said it was too big to stay on the tracks. And they were right. It's a bit dark, that scene, with the headless brake man. (laughs) It's, you did point that out as a, as a very Schwarzweldian thing earlier, and I, I agree with you. The, the, the absolute darkness of uh, uh, the idea of a decapitated train worker undercut with the slapstick of him walking into things. <laughs> uh, yeah, then we've got number three, which is the little musical number for Jack's Special Night, which is lifted straight from Citizen Kane once again, and only it's about Mr Burns. Number four, we have the Curies. 
which includes a lovely little touch, which is a Japanese bloke saying, it's for Curies, we must flee. But his mouth does not move in time with those words, uh, which is obviously a little dig at bad dubbing of Japanese kaiju films when they're released in English. Uh, number five, we have Homer's co-worker who can't speak English, Tibor. Then number six... When Marge points out that morale is low, she points at a few people, and one of them, who has a what appears to be a gun of some sort, says, I am the angel of death. The time of purification is at hand. So that's number six. In number seven, you have the payoff from the earlier setup. I'm used to seeing people being promoted ahead of me. Friends, co-workers, T-war. That's number seven. And then number eight. Ah, oh, this is for classic this is this is Chiellini grabbing you by the collar and yanking you backwards this is great this is too uh, soon too soon <laughs> uh, this is do you know that dream when you're in bed and they fly in through the window and of course it's Mr Burns flying into Smithers but but crucially it could be anyone in that bed and anyone flying in and it has been on a number of occasions it could be it could be then number nine is when the Timberwolf is in the studio, loud, that's our secret word for the day. I love the animation of that bit as well. When you see see the wolf's face with the, the flashing red light in it, it mm. really gives you the sense of panic that he's feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, then you've got number 10, which is Smithers holding Tom Jones hostage, essentially, and saying, that's it, big smile, everybody's happy. That's used as a template whenever anyone says anything against her will. Uh, number 11 is when Willie is with the wolf, saying, don't feel bad for losing. I was wrestling wolves back when you knew you were at your mother's teat. I can't do a Scottish accent at the best of times, and I can't do Brad Keeper Willie's accent, so that sounded terrible. <laughs> number 12, and just a still from this scene is... Uh, very memorable indeed. It's care to join me in a belt of scotch. Uh, with the lawyer Lionel Hutz having a drink at half past nine in the morning. <laughs> and finally, number 13, it's him being confronted with ten high-priced lawyers and screaming and running out of the room. So there we are, memorable moments for this one, which is a, a lot and a lot of good ones. Off the scale once again. I don't think that scale's getting any smaller either uh, anytime soon. No, no. Right, so get over here. Right then, this is what I'm looking at this week. Yes, that's the thing to Mortal Kombat, the fighting game developed by Midway and first released in arcades on October the 8th, 1992. Now, Mortal Kombat is a one-on-one fighting game, also known as, as a tournament fighter, not dissimilar to Street Fighter 2, which I talked about on episode 24. Ready for this. One fish, Street Fighter 2 fish, blue fish, blue fish. Well done. Obviously, Mortal Kombat came after it, and according to some stories, Midway commissioned it to be a rival to Street Fighter 2. But what about Midway? Well, they've been around since the 1950s, having been founded by Henry Ross and Marcin Wolverton in 1958. They were acquired by Bally in 1969 and specialised in mechanical games and slot machines. They had a close relationship with the Japanese company Taito and struck gold in 1978 when they acquired the licence for Space Invaders. You know, so when Groundskeeper Willie says, oh, I got it from Space Invaders in 1977... Some of them do their research because they were a year out. That game alone made a worldwide profit of $450 million by 1982, and Midway had a considerable slice of it. By that year, Midway had also purchased the license and distributed Pac-Man and Ms. Pac-Man. So also in that year, Bally merged its pinball division with Midway to form Bally slash Midway Manufacturing. That company was purchased by Williams in 1988 that started making video games under the name Midway in 1991. The story goes that Midway saw the success of Street Fighter 2 and wanted a piece of that action. To that end, they employed Ed Boone, a programmer who had been with Midway for 20 years, mostly working on pinball tables. Remember that weird pinball table funhouse? Yes. Good. Because I remember playing it and it's a... 
it, it's a real horrible nightmarish type thing of a ventriloquist dummy in the middle of a table and it's but it's at around 180 degrees that ventriloquist dummy was called Rudy and it was voiced by Ed Boone oh okay so there you go there's a bit of trivia for you the voice of Rudy from the Funhouse pinball table was provided by Ed Boone who made Mortal Kombat so and Ed Boone did all the voices for all the announcements as well so round one fight all that sort of stuff same guy who did the voice for the pinball machine weird Early on in the process, the development team wanted to get martial arts actor Jean-Claude Van Damme involved. Nothing came of that, but as we will see, the influence of the muscles from Brussels lingered on. So, the plot of the game, if you can say that it's got a plot. They went for a fantasy theme, with it being set on our planet, known in the game as Earthrealm. Roughly 500 years ago, the wizard Shang Tsung was banished to the Earthrealm by Shao Kahn, the Emperor of the Outworld. Shang Tsung took control of the Mortal Kombat tournament with the help of Goro, an eight-foot-tall, four-armed monster thing. For some reason, if Goro wins the current tournament, then Shao Kahn gets to take control of Earthrealm. So the player takes control of one of the characters in order to stop Goro and Shang Tsung. The tournament takes place on Shang Tsung's private island. Got that? Yes. I, I would have to say, as someone who's played the more recent Mortal Kombat um, games, that's simple compared to <laughs> what we now have. Okay. Okay. Well, this is 30-odd years ago. So, uh, yeah. Sim- sim- simpler times. Okay, so let's have a look at the characters. The first one I'm going to talk about is Johnny Cage. Remember when I said that the original idea was that the game was going to star Jean-Claude Van Damme? Well, Johnny Cage is the leftovers of that idea. His initials are JC, he's an actor who's trying to prove himself by entering the tournament, and one of his special moves is the infamous split punch. When performing it, he would do the splits and punch his opponent in the groin. Hans Molman Productions presents Man Getting Hit by Johnny Cage. Yoink. <laughs> Apparently, the move is inspired by a scene from the 1988 film Bloodsport, which I did look up, but it just appeared to be Jean-Claude Van Damme fighting a fat Asian bloke. I've definitely heard that that is a movie he does in one of his films. If you told me it was Bloodsport, I'd believe you. Okay, fair enough. Next up on the roster is Kano. Now, he's supposed to be the bad guy, the leader of a Black Dragon criminal gang. Apparently he heard a rumour that there was lots of gold in Shang Tsung's palace, so he jumped onto his junk to get there. And he was pursued by Sonya Blade. She led a team of US Special Forces who were pursuing the Black Dragon gang. When they arrived on Shang Tsung's island, they were captured by his forces, and Sonya was told that she must compete in the tournament in order to save the lives of the rest of them. According to the plot, Shang Tsung has no interest of holding up his end of the bargain and they are all killed immediately, with the exception of Sonya Blade. One thing that's always bothered me about Sonya is just how well girly she is. She throws with her legs, her projectiles, some pink rings, and for her fatality, she blows a kiss. This has is, this is irked me about uh, female and female presenting characters in uh, fighting games, well, since Street Fighter 2, essentially. Uh, it was like woman was a character, if you see what I mean. <laughs> yes. Like, like, you know, kind of like uh, Ryu does karate and, you know, Blanca has beast style and Chun-Li has woman. <laughs> it's, um, yeah. Uh, and it's got a bit more diverse these days, but you usually find it's the same kind of, you know, either distant sort of throw characters or like... Up-close grappling characters, but they're using their legs for some reason. There's, there's more kicks than punches, and you, you never really get a, a larger female character. It never, never, mm. ever happens. True, true. So, next up is Raiden. Now, he's a thunder god, and he has power over lightning. So, on earth is he doing fighting alongside a bunch of humans? Well, apparently, Raiden has been around for millennia. In the early days of Earthrealm, he got into a fight with Shinnok, another god, the war between them threatened the existence of Earthrealm itself, so Raiden expelled Shinnok to the Nether Realm 
took his amulet of power and hid it in a temple in Nepal. As you do. Uh, from what I understand. In the game, Raiden has been invited by Shang Tsung to take part in the tournament. In it, he supposedly mentors the other characters, so he's very much supposed to be a good guy. Despite the fact that he can use his uh, lightning thunder powers. Well, he uses lightning powers. He fires lightning, he doesn't fire thunder. And he, and he can make people's heads explode with it. But he's still meant to be a good guy. Anyway, then there's the main protagonist, Liu Kang. And he's a Shaolin monk, and obviously influenced by Bruce Lee. Obviously. Because he's a Shaolin monk, his fatality move doesn't involve explicitly killing his opponent. He just does a somersault, then a big uppercut. Although he had no problem turning into a dragon and biting people's heads off in later games. Oh, and if you do his, uh, his uppercut fatality on the pit stage, then they still fly off and into the pit. Mm. So... Yeah, they're unambiguously dead. <laughs> yes, because they have a big spike fruit. Or at least they do in the nonsense versions. Finally, there are the two ninjas, Scorpion and Sub-Zero. They are what are called palette swaps of each other. In the early days of video games, memory was limited. So to save on it, developers would use certain tricks. One such trick was the palette swap, whereby changing... The sprite's colours, you could get two characters for the price of one. Mario and Luigi from the original Super Mario Brothers is a good example of this. Also, when Link gets armour upgrades in Legend of Zelda, Link's of the Past, he goes through palette swaps. He, his clothes change colour, basically. So Scorpion is the yellow one, and Sub-Zero is the blue one. Sub-Zero has ice powers, so think of him as the ninja version of Elsa from Frozen. In the story... Scorpion and Sub-Zero belong to rival ninja clans, and before the tournament, Sub-Zero kills Scorpion. However, Scorpion is allowed to return as some kind of undead warrior, evidenced by his fatality move where he takes his mask off to reveal that he's a fire-breathing skeleton-type thing. So, Scorpion and Sub-Zero vary in their special moves. Sub-Zero has the ability to freeze his enemies, where a scorpion can throw a harpoon, embed it in his opponent's chest while pulling them towards himself while yelling his catchphrase, Get over here! Or come here! In versions of the game where they don't have as much memory for audio files. I, I, I saw a really good meme of that the other day. It was that scene from The Simpsons where Selma and Troy McClure have just got married. Only instead of Selma in the bed, it's Scorpion. And Troy McClure is saying, no, why don't you get over here? It's <laughs> <laughs> genius. Uh, then there are the bosses. There is Goro. And what's interesting about him is that he's a clay model animated using the technique of stop-motion animation. After him, there is the final boss of the game, Shang Tsung. There isn't that much to say about him. He's just an old grey wizard who has the ability to transform into any characters that you've already beaten. That was supposed to be his main thing. It was like, oh, he can turn into anyone. But you've, but you've, but you've, you've just beaten all of those characters. <laughs> so, so what if he can turn into people that you've already beaten? That, that, that's not a challenge. So anyway, if you played the one-player game, you would progress through the tournament one match at a time. After fighting all the other characters, you would fight yourself in a mirror match. Then came three endurance rounds where you had to beat two opponents in one go. And after that, you'd fight Guro and then Shang Tsung, and then if you beat him, you wouldn't be game. So each fight would work like this. Two fighters would face off against each other in a best of three rounds fight. The winner of each round was the first to drain their opponent's health bar. They could do this with standard moves, such as punches and kicks, and each character had their own unique special moves. At the end of the fight, the defeated fighter would stand back up and sway around in the dizzy animation. The screen would go dark. The words, finish him, or finish her, would appear on the screen, as well as being said by the announcer. This gave the victor the chance to perform their fatality, a move that would kill their opponent. If they successfully pulled it off, they would be rewarded with extra points. Starting with the first game, hidden characters would be a staple of the Mortal Kombat series. This game had Reptile, another palette swap of Scorpion and Sub-Zero, who appeared green rather than yellow or blue. 
he would pop up at the start of random fights and offer clues on how to find him, sometimes speaking backwards to utter phrases such as Yvonne et Niage. How did you find Reptile? Well, I'm going to tell you. First, have a fight on the pit level. Then, wait until you see something pass past the moon. It's like, um, something like Santa and his reindeer pulling a sleigh goes past the moon. After that, it's just a matter of pulling off two perfect rounds without blocking, ending with a fatality. If you manage to do all of that, you are rewarded with a fight against Reptile at the bottom of the pit. He is very fast and can do Scorpion and Sub-Zero special moves. If you manage to defeat him and kill him with a fatality, you get 10 million points. I remember when points were a thing in games. Yeah, well, getting high score in an arcade, that definitely used to be a thing, because if you got the high score, then you could put your initials, you know, usually ASS or something like that, on the high scoreboard, and then it would be there forever, basically. So just just anyone looking at the machine and who walked past would see your initials. Yes. So... All of the characters in the game, with the exception of Goro, are played by actors. How does that work, exactly? Well, the actors took up poses and still photographs were taken. Those photos were then digitised and turned into sprites. So certainly for the time, the game looked very realistic. Before Mortal Kombat, most games were, you know, had kind of cartoony sprites and they obviously weren't real people. Something like Street Fighter 2, all of the... Sprites are hand-drawn and rather cartoony. So, so if that, so if the character from Street Fighter Two got punched or kicked or whatever, that didn't really matter. It was just a cartoon character. Whereas with Mortal Kombat, it's real people. So these characters were so realistic that people would crowd around the arcade cabinet to see it, especially the finishing moves. The rather graphic violence got the attention of groups such as the National Coalition on Television Violence who were concerned by what children were being exposed to. This concern was only amplified when Mortal Kombat made it to home consoles on September 13th, 1993. Dubbed Mortal Monday and accompanied by a lot of media hype and a $10 million publicity budget, the game was released for the Super Nintendo, Sega Mega Drive, slash Genesis, depending on where you are in the world, Game Boy and Game Gear all on the same day. There were differences between versions. I'm not going to talk about the Game Boy and Game Gear versions because the handheld consoles of the early 90s weren't exactly powerful, but the home consoles were. I have, to this day, I have no idea why they bothered making a Game Boy version of that game. Yeah, exactly. G- game Boy Mortal Kombat. What is the point? So, Nintendo led the recovery of the video game industry from the crash of 1983. One of the contributing factors to the crash was a glut of inferior games, with consumers having no way of knowing what was good and what was bad. Nintendo addressed this problem with their own seal of approval. Back in the day, anyone could make games for the Atari 2600 and sell them. However, games made for the NES and later Super NES had to be approved by Nintendo. This meant that games on Nintendo systems had to abide by Nintendo's rules, which included strict rules on violence. So the blood in Mortal Kombat was replaced by sweat, and some of the finishing moves were toned down. No longer did Kano rip the still-beating heart from his opponent, he stole their soul instead. Sub-Zero no longer pulled his opponent's head off, he froze them, then shattered them with a punch. Which was still quite impressive. I think that was that was the best do-over uh, fatality, that one. Mm. So say you had no such problems with censorship, the blood and gore could be unlocked with a cheat code which everyone knew. It might as well have not existed, that code, because everyone knew it. So while Nintendo players had to make do with sweat and toned down fatalities, Sega players had the whole package of violence. And as a result, the Sega Genesis slash Mega Drive version of Mortal Kombat outsold the Super Nintendo version. This all came to the attention of the US Senate at the end of 1993. One Bob Anderson almost bought a copy of Mortal Kombat for his young son before he did some research on it, and he told his boss about what he found. His boss was Senator Joe Lieberman. 
That name should sound familiar because Joe Lieberman ran for vice president in the 2000 election. That was the one where the issue of hanging chads was decided in the US Supreme Court. So Lieberman and the seconder Herb Cole pulled the gaming industry over the coals. See what I did there? On December the 7th, 1993. The evidence for the prosecution came from Professor Eugene F. Provenzo of the University of Miami, Marilyn Jaws from the National Coalition on Television Violence, and the National Education Association represented by Robert Chase. No, not that one. Included in the defence were the Vice President of Nintendo of America, Howard Lincoln, and the Vice President of Sega of America, Bill White. Howard Lincoln was made Nintendo Vice President following Nintendo's legal victory over Universal Studios in regards to the legal rights over King Kong. That's a very interesting story in itself, I'll have to tell that one day. Well, Bill White had previously worked for Nintendo for six years, so no love lost there. The hearings focused on three games, Mortal Kombat, Night Trap, and Lethal Enforcers. Lethal Enforcers was a point-and-shoot game. It came with its own baby blue gun, the Konami Justifier, which was produced by Lieberman in court. Looking a little bit ridiculous, this old politician waving this baby blue handgun around. Like Mortal Kombat, the game featured digitised sprites rather than cartoony hand-drawn ones, heads for concern about depictions of violence. Night Trap, however, is a bit of a weird one. It was on the Sega CD, and it featured over 90 minutes of original video. The idea was that the player would play as a secret agent who was tasked with guarding a girl's slumber party, which is under attack by a group of vampires that the game calls Ogres, A-U-G-E-R-S. The gameplay is crude by today's standards. The player watches videos from security cameras, and if they press the right button at the right time, the video will change to the ogres falling into a trap. However, if the player doesn't activate the trap in time, then the ogres win and capture the girls. One clip, played out of context, shows one of the ogres placing what looks like a drill on one of the girls' necks just before she's taken off screen. What's funny about the congressional hearings is the way the representatives of Sega and Nintendo went after each other. This was during the height of the console wars, and they essentially played that out in court. Sega pointed out that they already had a rating system, with their rating being G for general audiences, MA13 for teens, and MA17 for adults. They were attacked by the senators for having an ineffective rating system, and Herb Cole in particular questioned how a 13-year-old could be considered mature. Nintendo responded by saying that they had a long-standing code of conduct for their games, which excluded sex, profanity and violence, which is why their version of Mortal Kombat was so censored. Howard Lincoln also stated that Night Trap would never appear on their systems. There's also a part of the hearings where Bill White produces a Nintendo Super Scope. Remember that, the big bazooka thing that you put on your shoulder. And effectively says, look, Nintendo make this big-ass gun. How is that responsible? <laughs> to which Howard Lincoln replied, you make the menacer. That's worse. That's, yeah, yeah, that's an actual, that actually looks like a proper gun, sort of. Anyway, the message from the senators to the video game in- industry was clear. You regulate yourselves or we'll do it for you. Lieberman had a bill drafted that did just that on February 3rd, 1994. The second hearing was held a month later on March 5th, 1994. In it, the senior vice president of Electronic Arts, Jack Highstand, told the committee that he was also the head of the newly formed Interactive Entertainment Industry Rating Commission. They were ready to produce the rating system that Lieberman wanted, and they had seven companies, Nintendo, Sega, EA, obviously, Atari, Acclaim, Philips, and 3DO signed up to it. 3DO, remember that? I wish I didn't. (laughs) The larger retailers present, Walmart, Toys R Us, and Babbage's. Uh, That's the three, isn't it? That's the three you remember. I know, I know. Then crazy, Logan's probably girl, look at your eye, two Babbage's. (laughs) There will be two people who get that reference. They all agreed to not sell games that weren't rated. 
One of the first jobs of the coalition was to come up with a rating system, and Sega proposed that they used theirs. No one else was up for that. <laughs> can, can, can you imagine? Well, I, I propose that we use our rating system. Uh, all in favour of using Sega's rating system? Um... <laughs> After all, why use a competitor's rating system that had been derided in the Senate? Instead, the Entertainment Software Rating Board was developed, or ESRB. Not only did the ESRB have several game classifications that ran from early childhood to adult, they included content descriptors. With these, parents could see what they were buying for their children. The ESRB was put to Congress in July 1994, and it officially became active in September that year, just in time for the holiday season. Senator Lieberman was satisfied, and he withdrew his draft bill. Ironically enough, because Nintendo adopted the ESRB rating system, Sony Violent Games were allowed, and Mortal Kombat 2 made onto the Super Nintendo without any censorship. So there you are, the story of the original Mortal Kombat and its lasting legacy on the video game industry. The series is still going today, and I think we'll have the ESRB for some time to come. Does seem that way. I did spot some uh, more combat references in The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. So the most obvious is Bone Store. <laughs> As introduced, acquired by Millhouse and later stolen by Bart in Season 7, Episode 11, Marge Be Not Proud. In that game, six armed combatants are seen to fight as gore and body parts rain from the sky. Features include two-player mode, unless Millhouse is involved, and the ability to enter your name, as long as it's eight characters or less. <laughs> as someone with a seven-letter first name in a sea of six-character name entry functions on 16-bit games, I know Thrill Hose pain. <laughs> Truly, this is what it feels like when doves cry. But it may not have been the first reference inspired by video game violence. In Season 6, Episode 9, Homer Badman, Ashley the babysitter distracts Bart with a copy of Disemboweler 4, the game where condemned criminals dig at each other with rusty hooks. To put a, uh, a sad coda onto your story, Tom, as well, I can also reveal that on August the 24th, 2018, Night Trap was released on the Nintendo Switch. <laughs> yes, it was, indeed. Do him for back perjury. <laughs> exactly. Howard, Howard Lincoln will be eating his words. Actually, actually, I, I, I just need to check if Howard Lincoln's still alive. I assume he is. Uh, he's, he's still alive. Okay. Uh, and, oh, blimey, he's 81. Okay. He's not in our target audience, we should be fine. Yeah. And on that court contempting note, <laughs> don't forget you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus, email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Bye.